We have a really harsh criminal justice apparatus. If you are convicted of harming a child, you're going to go to prison for a long time. Then you're going to be on parole. Um, then if you ever do reoffend, even without the registry, you will be punished far more harshly. So there's all kinds of sanctions already in place. The registry is just a form of vengeance and public shaming. It's not effective. It doesn't help anything. There's virtually no evidence that seeing, you know, being able to Google somebody and seeing they have a prior sex offense has any impact on reoffense. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. If you're someone who likes to take unpopular positions on public issues, you'd be hard-pressed to do better than fighting for the rights of convicted sex offenders. But the National Sex Offender Registry, which was established in the 1990s and is the only such registry in the world that publicly discloses the names and addresses of offenders regardless of the level of offense, is anything but unassailable. The more than 800,000 people currently on the registry include not only those who've committed serious sex crimes against children, but also people who've downloaded child pornography despite never having touched a child, people who've had sex at, say, age 19 with their 16-year-old boyfriend or girlfriend, or even people who've been caught urinating in public. Once on the registry, they're subject to often draconian restrictions on where they're allowed to live and travel, often making it impossible to find jobs, leaving them homeless, and basically casting them out of society, often for the rest of their lives. Sociologist and criminal justice scholar Emily Horowitz is one of a handful of academics and researchers who are speaking out against the registry, showing how it arose out of an era of moral panic about child safety and often does more to ruin lives than to protect kids. Emily spoke with me about what led her to this work, why our assumptions about sexual predators are often wrong, and explains the reasons why sexual abuse against children and sex crimes in general have been steadily declining over the last 30 years for reasons having nothing to do with the registry. Emily Horowitz, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you so much. You are a scholar. You have a PhD from Yale in sociology. You teach sociology and criminal justice at St. Francis College. You also founded a program that helps formerly incarcerated students earn college degrees. But you're probably best known for your work having to do with the National Sex Offender Registry. You're the author of a 2015 book called Protecting Our Kids? Question mark. How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing Us. How did you get interested in this subject? Is this why you went into sociology or did you stumble upon this somewhere along the way? No, I, I stumbled upon it. My dissertation, uh, which I did in the mid 90s, was about domestic violence courts. And like many people uh, who went to college in the late 80s, early 90s, um, I was a very committed feminist. I believe strongly in feminist theory. I, I engaged in some feminist activism. And uh, as I was pursuing my PhD, my PhD in sociology, I decided I wanted to study uh, domestic violence and uh, domestic violence courts in particular. I was really interested in these specialized courts that would only see domestic violence cases. 
So I spent about a year observing a domestic violence court, and that's what my dissertation was about. Um, and I was really interested in these courts because they were kind of a form of institutionalized feminism. So it was sort of like feminism entering into policy and the state. And I thought it was doing really good things like, you know, domestic violence is this horrible crime. And it's really great that the state is is stepping in and punishing those accused of this really harshly. And I, are there actually domestic violence courts the same way there are drug courts, for instance? I didn't know this was a specific uh, type of court. And is yeah. this it varies from state to state? It, it absolutely varies from state to state. In New York, it was kind of an experiment that was started soon after the drug courts. Uh, and the idea was that you'd have this specialized court part where the social workers and the defense attorneys and prosecutors and judge would be really aware of all the complexities of domestic violence crimes. And they'd constantly talk about a case where, where before the domestic violence court, you know, a judge had let somebody go, you know, over the pleas of a woman who said he's dangerous, he's going to kill me. And he uh, killed his, his intimate partner like that evening. So they would constantly talk about this and they would say in our court part, we're super sensitive to this. And, and we don't, you know, if, if a woman expresses fear, we take it really seriously and, and nobody's going home. But what happened when I observed the court part, which was in Brooklyn, right, which is a very diverse borough, there's rich, poor. One of the things that you hear when you uh, when you learn about domestic violence in like an academic setting and you read about it, they always say it's rich, it's poor, it's black, it's white, it's across the board. Um, but one thing that you see really quickly if you look at domestic violence cases and you sit in a domestic violence court is that it's all poor people mm. and it's almost all poor people of color. One time, uh, the defendant w had a had a job as like a bus driver, and people were literally like coming to see like who is this guy because it was so unusual to have somebody who, you know, was was fully employed and in kind of a wow, yeah, middle class sort of job. So I was really shocked, first of all, that it was all people of color, that it was all poor people, and then I was also really shocked that the cases were far more ambiguous than I thought. Like, I remember being really frightened, like, I'm going to see a guy who, you know, has done something violent to a woman and it's going to be really scary. You know, I had totally dehumanized these men and I'd assume they were monsters, but it was pretty clear that there was a lot of complicated issues, right? There were many times where the women, and I say women because even though another thing that they always say when you learn about domestic violence is, like, well, you know, like men are victims too, and but but the court would only see... I, I never saw, you know, same sex violence. This was, you know, I did this in the mid nineties. Maybe it's a bit different now. You never saw same sex violence or for instance, men accusing women of being no, violent. Is I, that I, ever, okay. That didn't I happen I never at all. saw that okay. even though um, like we know that happens, but you know, there's a lot of arguments like you're less likely to go to the, the, the hospital. You're less likely to seek treatment. There's a lot of shame. Anyway, in many of the case, many of the times, the women would say, like, I called the cops. I lied. He's the only source of, you know, help for our family. I don't want him to go to prison. It seemed like a lot of times the women themselves were completely ambivalent about the cases and that there were a lot of times where the men would say, she hit me first. And the judge would say, I don't care. It's between me and you. I don't care what she says. And it really struck me as being a really weird kind of feminism to say, like, it doesn't matter that she said she lied. And this would happen all the time. 
or she exaggerated or, you know, she didn't want him to have to like the judge would say things like, OK, he has to be like in another borough. Well, his mother lived in Brooklyn. She lived in Brooklyn. And she'd say, like, I don't want him to have to live in another borough. I just don't want him to come back to the house. And the punishment. So the judge would have an order of protection saying that he had to live a certain distance away from her that as opposed to going to to jail or this uh, was like either usually or. they were sent to jail and then like, you know, uh, for a temporary period, most of them couldn't meet bail. But yeah, when they were released, um, there would be all sorts of rules or before sentencing, there'd be all sorts of rules that the women would often say are too much. Um, and there'd often be like other people who would say she always hits him. Anyway, it didn't seem it just if you looked at this court and there was no sound off, it would just look like any other court part in Brooklyn where it was a lot of poor people, a lot of people of color and the same poor men that were going to prison for all the other crimes that were happening in the borough. It wasn't something um, specific about sex or gender. It just looked like the drug courts and all the other courts. Um, and it just looked like, you know, if you the the it was very reflective of, of the jail population in New York. So it made me very critical of the criminal justice system. It made me very critical of feminists trying to apply their ideology and politics, which came from a very good place, right? I mean, if you look at data from the 60s and 70s, there's no incidents of domestic violence because the police weren't taking it seriously, you know, similarly to rape and sexual assault. So right. feminists were very effective. Like now every police department in the country has, has training to deal with rape, sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, but then to translate that into like punishment and vengeance is really ugly especially when you know part of feminism in my view is about like justice justice not vengeance and so you just saw all these really poor people you know getting felony records violent felony records so even if the guys did go to their anger management and and batterers program and all these things they were required to do and drug testing you know they were going to have a hard time finding employment ever right so it's like you're destroying all of these lives. You're destroying the lives of the family. And it was really, really upsetting. So that's what I wrote about. And that's kind of what opened my eyes to some of the problems with, you know, good intentioned policies being translated into criminal justice policies. OK, so the sex offender registry, tell us when it started, what was the impetus for it, and just kind of give us an overview. because. I think a lot of people are confused. I'm certainly confused. I'm not entirely sure if it has to do with sexual crimes across the board, if it's specific to sexual crimes against minors. Tell us what what's going on with this. So in the late 80s, early 90s, there were there were a number of very high profile stranger abductions of children, of white middle class children that got a lot of uh, airtime, like Adam Walsh, Jacob Wetterling. And the country was kind of gripped in this fear that these children, and it was never really, many of these cases, it was never really clear if the people were abducted and murdered by somebody who had a prior sex offense. But a lot of that fear translated into a desire for stricter laws for those who are already convicted of sex offenses. So the first federal law for public registries, which is, you know, what we're talking about, uh, started in 1994. By 1996, you have public registries, 
which anyone could access. It was a little bit, you know, before the internet, there were like 1-800 numbers, but federal laws were passed by 1996 covering every state that anybody convicted of a sex offense was going to be on a registry for a set amount of time. Originally, it was supposed to be, the intention was it was supposed to be, you know, maybe for people who had harmed minors, but very quickly it morphed into anybody who was convicted of any sex offense, um, including, you know, over half of people on the registry. There's, there's different ways to look at the data and some states it's different, but most people, many people on the registry have adult victims. Many of the people on the registry have non-contact offenses, people who've looked at pictures of children, but maybe haven't touched children. Many people on the registry are there because of stings. And some of them are there because they've sexually harmed children. Um, the problem with the registry, right, was that it was intended, again, it was like a very well-intended policy, right? Like the worst thing you can think of is a child snatched off the street by a stranger who harms them sexually and then kills them, right? This is like yeah. every parent's worst or, thing. Or harmed by a camp counselor or a priest or a teacher or something like that, right? Right. Well, that's why the registry is a mess, right? So the registry, the idea is like you can go on the internet, you can type in your address and you can see everybody in your neighborhood who has a prior conviction for a sex offense. The main problem with this registry is that over 95% of crimes against children are not stranger offenses. They're, right. like you said, priests, teachers, family members, uncles, people known to the children. It's extraordinarily rare. It's statistically the equivalent of zero that a child is going to be snatched off and sexually assaulted by a random stranger, especially a random stranger who has a prior sex offense. If you look at those high profile cases, um, there's uh, Megan Kanka, all these cases, um, there's, there's no evidence that if the family um, had been aware that there were like people in their neighborhood with prior sex offenses, they would have behaved any differently. Megan Kanka is the one case where the person did have a prior conviction for a sex offense. In the other cases, the, 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 the people who eventually, after years and years, were found to have committed those crimes did not have prior convictions for sex offenses. So when did you start to write or talk or just think seriously about the sex offender registry? When did it become your area of inquiry? Well, I met a journalist, Debbie Nathan, who's an amazing journalist, um, who I met her like socially and I read her book after meeting her and she wrote a book called Satan's Silence about the daycare panic. And it struck me that a lot of what happened in the daycare panic where adults working in daycare centers were accused many times, multiple, multiple offender, multiple victim cases you know, in, in clear view of children sexually assaulting lots of children in daycare centers, which never happened. Um, it struck me that it was somewhat similar to what I'd seen in the domestic violence court. Like we have this idea of what happens um, when women are beaten. And we have this idea of what happens when children are sexually abused. Um, and then it takes on a life of its own. And so there was this idea that came about because of various cultural tensions that children in daycare centers were being sexually harmed by the adults watching them. This basically never happened, but yeah. 
Yeah, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, right? The McMartin preschool case was probably the most infamous. Yeah, this was a moral panic that was going on at that time for various reasons, just so listeners have some context. Yeah. Right. So there, there was this moral panic that emerged about kids being sexually harmed. And that also kind of indirectly led to these sex offense laws. But I read this book um, and I was completely floored because it, it never had occurred to me that children were not being sexually abused in daycare centers. Um, I'd kind of heard of it and I thought, well, oh, maybe that happens. You know, I hadn't thought about it critically. And she provides all this evidence that shows really clearly that these that there were still people in prison for these crimes. Many people had been wrongfully convicted. And then I started meeting people who um, had experience being on the sex offense registry through my um, interest in her work. So I met somebody who was on the registry here in New York City, and I was completely overwhelmed by the restrictions that he had to live under. What were those restrictions? Well, first of all, this was somebody who'd been accused of a sex offense, um, who'd spent 13 years in prison. So that's a long time. He was on parole. Um, It was clear in his case that there was a lot of complications. But regardless of his guilt or innocence, I was shocked that after serving that time, which is a really long time, right, upstate prison, went in when he was like a very young man, 18, he came out and he had a curfew. He couldn't be around children. He was constantly drug tested. Um, He was sometimes followed. He was visited by parole officers at all hours of the day and night. He uh, attempted to go to a religious congregation and the pastor found out that he was on the registry and that the congregation freaked out. He was forced out and religion was something that had gotten him through life in prison. He had no hope of getting a job. He was living with a family member and in an apartment building and the family member was quickly asked to leave the building. Um, and it was clear he was experiencing a kind of social death as Roger Lancaster, who's a wonderful um, scholar, wrote in a book. He, he, he's the first person I can think of who used that term. He was really banished. And it struck me again, it was like this vengeance. He served time. The other thing to, to remember is that a lot of these laws are based on this idea that people who commit sex offenses are completely different than those who commit other offenses right? They're, they, they can't stop. They won't stop. They're predatory. They're far more dangerous than anybody who commits any other offense. But the data shows they're completely similar. It's like consistent across all offenses that you age out of offenses. Punishment can work. Um, treatment can work. Uh, the recidivism rate for sex offenses is lower than any other type of violent offense. So here was this guy who it was clear had been completely traumatized by prison was never going to offend again, and was not allowed to rebuild his life. And the other thing is, I teach criminal justice, right? And the one thing we know is that the, the, the key way to prevent recidivism is to allow people to get a job, to have families, to rebuild their lives, to develop ties to the community. If you cut that off, the only thing that's going to happen is that the, the, the individuals are going to be more likely to reoffend. Okay, I just want to make sure I'm understanding something. You're saying the rate of recidivism is no different than a crime that's not a sex crime. Is that true even of people who have committed sex crimes against children? Because it's really an article of faith 
pretty much that if you, you know, a child molester never molests just one child. Like it is, it is a pattern. So are we making a distinction between like the Larry Nassers of the world? This, this is the gymnastics coach at Michigan State who, you know, just notorious. Okay, well, famously, let me interrupt yes, you. Yes, please let me do. use the yes. example okay. of Larry Nasser, right? Okay. The registry would not have protected those girls, right? He was not on the registry. He'd never been convicted of a sex offense. I'm pretty sure if he'd been convicted of a sex offense and went to prison, once he got out, he would not have reoffended. And I'm pretty sure of that because that's what the data shows over and over and over. For various reasons, punishment works, treatment works. You know, there are like there's there's a there's a very small segment of the world. They're they're clinical sociopaths, they're unreachable, but that's extraordinarily unusual, right? Especially with sex offenses. I mean, I have a theory that, you know, can't obviously be pro- proven, but um, most of the people that are punished publicly for a sex offense who are sent to prison, who have to deal with being in prison for being somebody who committed a sex offense are so traumatized and so mistreated. They, they, you know, I hate, this is a silly term, like they learn their lesson, like they don't do it again. So Larry Nasser was never caught. So the registry would not have affected him at all. Okay. So one of the things that we also talk about a lot when we talk about the sex offender registry is the fact that a lot of people on it, like you said, these are non-contact crimes. There's also this Romeo and Juliet phenomenon where somebody who is, say, 19 has sex with his, I don't know, 16-year-old girlfriend, and that's considered statutory rape and gets, I don't know if that person would do prison time necessarily, but that would wind you up on the sex offender registry. So that seems to me blatantly unfair, illogical. Um, But what percentage, I don't know if you have, if there are numbers, but like how many of those sorts of cases are there as opposed to people who have really done bad things, have, have molested children? Like how lopsided is the population on the registry? Well, here's here's the way I think it's better to look at it this way. Um, We have a really harsh criminal justice apparatus. If you are convicted of harming a child, you're going to go to prison for a long time Then you're going to be on parole. Um, Then if you ever do reoffend, even without the registry, you will be punished far more harshly. So there's all kinds of sanctions already in place. The registry is just a form of vengeance and public shaming. It's not effective. It doesn't help anything. There's virtually no evidence that seeing, you know, being able to Google somebody and seeing they have a prior sex offense has any impact on reoffense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I think, I think we get like, I teach a course on sex crimes and my students are always like, okay, well, just for the worst of the worst, but for the worst of the worst, we already have harsher penalties than any other country on earth. We have a really harsh criminal justice system. Like, so if you can, I mean, getting off parole, parole is no walk in the park. It's a tripwire. You're far, you know, it's very hard to get through prison and get through parole unscathed. And if you do, you know, all the research shows you're very unlikely to reoffend. So the registry is not about protecting kids. When we're talking about these punitive, you would say draconian measures for somebody who's on the sex offender registry, are we talking generally about people who've committed crimes against kids? Yeah. So there's, there's levels. So in some states, everybody 
automatically is on it for life and faces registry restrictions, regardless of the offense. In some states, like in New York, if you have an offense that maybe, you know, doesn't involve a child and isn't classified as violent, you might be a level one when you get out, which means you won't be on the registry once you finish up parole. And also you won't be on the public registry. But for example, I was just working with somebody who is a level one and he can't find any housing in New York City. Basically, it took him months and months. You can't leave prison unless you find housing. But in New York City, every place is near a school. Every place is near a playground. Um, Eventually he and he had like extensive family support. So he's subject to uh, residency restrictions. So his family eventually found him a room somewhere, but he was he was going to have to go into the shelter system just because there were virtually no places. And those who work with uh, the population leaving New York state prisons um, tell lots of stories. There was recently a suit filed because they have to stay longer in prison because they can't find suitable housing. So they're t- they're set. They've maxed out their sentence and they have to stay there um, because there's no place in New York. Uh, New York City that they can live. Yeah. So this is the thing. Some states, I think you you can't live within a thousand feet of a school or even a playground. Maybe sometimes it's 2000 feet, 2,500 feet. Like, how is that? How is that even possible? Like, like, as you just said, is there any place in a major city that isn't within that amount of distance from someplace where kids congregate? No, like, you know, for example, in Miami, there were uh, a group of sex offenders or people who committed sex offenses living under a bridge. And it got international attention because there was nowhere in the city they could live. There's also people in Florida, for example, who have families, but their families live too close to a school. So they'll go sleep in a parking lot. So they don't live there. They'll get up early in the morning and they'll go shower at their family's home and then go to work. Um, in California, the actually the probation department there noticed that homelessness was increasing because of the registry registry restrictions. So they rolled those back um, because probation said we can't keep track of people if they don't have homes. It's much harder to, you know, provide treatment and support for somebody who doesn't have housing. And what happens if it's a family member who lives in, in the home that commits a crime against a child, that person does his or her time, comes back into the household, are they not allowed to rejoin their families? Because I feel like I've heard cases where somebody molests a child and then they're sort of back in the home at some point. Is that possible? There's very strict rules. If your offense involves a child, if you have children, there's many, many restrictions that you'll face, uh, even if you are eventually left back in the home. For my book, I interviewed a number of people who said, you know, who had children, Many people who had they'd been convicted before even the birth of their children, they weren't allowed to go to the school to pick up their child. They couldn't attend graduation. Their child, uh, if the child had friends over, they'd have to leave the home. Um, Lots and lots of restrictions and rules. You can't just go back into your home if you have children and you have a sex offense. You're going to have to work very closely with um, your probation or parole officer and the state regarding the rules. And even even after you're off probation or parole, you're going to have to work with the state registry and make sure they approve your housing. Okay. So again, what is the percentage of people on the registry who have cases like they slept with their 
16 year old girlfriend when they were 19. Or, you know, I know you have talked and written about a lot of cases where there are people with intellectual uh, disabilities, people who are developmentally disabled, who wind up in situations where they don't really know what's going on, or they're, they've been coerced into exposing themselves to somebody. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, variations on how somebody could get themselves into this situation. So like, do you have a sense of how many of those kinds of cases end up with people on the registry? So it's very hard because um, every state presents their data differently and codes their data differently. But I work with a number of organizations that advocate for those on the registry who advocate for rights uh, for those on the registry. So I meet lots of people and a lot of people reach out to me who are on the registry. So there are definitely within these organizations and advocacy groups, subgroups that represent those on the registry who have intellectual disabilities. I worked on a book specifically looking at the problem of those with intellectual disabilities winding up in the registry. Um, there's subgroups for people who children, it's a, it's actually an amazing group of mothers have been convicted of the so-called Romeo and Juliet cases, cases where, you know, there's about a four or five year difference, but one of the, 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 the victim in the case is, is under the age of consent and the, person who winds up on the registry is above the age of consent. Um, in fact, in California, there was an interesting law that um, said that in cases of the Romeo and Juliet laws, where there's like this four-year difference where one's above the age of consent and one is below, you know, you don't have to be on the public registry unless it's a same-sex case. So they eventually repealed that. But it was really interesting because even though, you know, there's a lot of advocacy for LGBTQ people now. Um, that that was a very controversial issue and didn't receive like a ton of support from ad, traditional advocates for LGBTQ rights. Yeah, I feel like I, I read about a case, was it in Idaho or something like that, where there were two teenagers, I don't know how old they were, but they, it was a, you know, there was same sex kind of encounter or a couple encounters that took place. And at least one of them ended up on the registry simply because it was a same-sex encounter yes, and there yes, were some kind of law on the books, just, you know, anti-homosexual activity law on the books anyway. Right. That's right. So I, that case was featured in the New York Times last week. And that's a guy who uh, had, he was a young man. He had sex with another young man. And both the young, both of them were above the age of consent. They were young. I think it was like, you know, 1917 or something like that. But he wound up on the registry because it was a same sex case. And also in that particular case, uh, the older boy was technically an employee of the school and the younger boy was was at the school. And this guy's worked for like 30 years to get his name off the registry and he just can't. Wow. Um, and, and yeah. And that would be a case where somebody blows the whistle. Like, how did these end up in the system? Because you've got a case, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, I know I, I heard you do an interview about a case where, you know, that there was a young man, he was, he did have intellectual disabilities and um, he got just in a horrifying situation where I think it was a, a neighbor kid had kind of goaded him into exposing himself to an, a a girl in the neighborhood and just ended up in the system really indefinitely. 
I can't remember if it was the mother of the girl who went to the police or decided to report this. Um, is that often what happens? Is that somebody reacts really intensely to a situation that is perhaps not as serious as one might think it is? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In the Romeo and Juliet cases, often it's a parent of the younger person who goes to the police. Um, there's also been cases similar to what I saw in the domestic violence courts where the so-called victim or the parents of the victim or whoever, you know, got the state involved, regrets it, and there's nothing they can do. Right. Even if they write a letter, even if they, you know, go public, there's nothing uh, that can be done. It takes on a life of its own. So, yeah, it gets brought to the attention of the state in various ways. Um, but I wanted to add, so you have people on the, the registry with intellectual disabilities, Romeo and Juliet cases. Um, you also have juveniles themselves on the registry. There was a wonderful piece in the New Yorker a few years ago about a young woman named Leah DeBook, I think. And she had she was put on the registry when she herself was a minor. And now she's spending her life on the registry. It was, it's a really harrowing story about how she attempted to go to college and her classmates uh, discovered she was on the registry for a crime she herself committed as a minor. So. Um, you have all these different groups. So you have advocates for all of these different groups. But it's really clear, you know, what's most important is, you know, we have this very energized uh, group of people working for criminal justice reform. And they're very, very successful. But they've kind of carved out, except for sex offenders, except for sex offenders. In Florida, uh, now people with convictions are allowed to vote, except those convicted of sex offenses or murder. Can you talk about certain cases that stand out to you? I don't know if you want to talk about Jacob Wetterling's mother, who was a real activist, um, you know, with respect to going after sex offenders. Um, I mean, that was a terrible case. Her son was abducted. I think he was one of those disappeared. I think he kind of just vanished into thin air. I can't remember if they caught his his assailant, but, um, she really over the decades has changed her, her views, um, on this and is, you know, thinks about this very differently. So there's that case. And I don't know if there are others that kind of stand out to you that you want to talk about. Absolutely. I can talk about Jacob Wetterling's amazing mother, Patty Wetterling. Um, Jacob Wetterling was a kid from Minnesota. He was kidnapped and he was, he was murdered when he was 11 years old. And the case actually was unsolved for 27 years. Immediately after he was missing, um, you know, they started thinking like, let's look for people who maybe have a sex offense. And Patty Wetterling thought one way she could deal with this um, and do good in the world and prevent this from happening to others would be to advocate for a list that police officers could have. So if a child is missing, they would immediately know everybody in the community who had a prior sex offense conviction. She didn't envision it becoming this public thing that you could Google or, you know, putting all kinds of people on the registry for all different kinds of crimes. Um, and she was very successful in 1994. The Jacob Wetterling Act was passed, which is a federal law uh, uh, regarding registries. But after a couple of decades of this, she started meeting more and more people who were devastated by the registry. And she did this really amazing, brave thing where she publicly spoke out and said, they're a disaster. This isn't what I wanted. I didn't want to ruin people's lives. I wanted to help 
you know, families like mine find their children. So eventually it was solved. And it turns out that the person who harmed her child did, in fact, you know, not have a prior sex offense conviction. Um, And also, I mean, another thing to think about, there's a really good book that Paul Renfro uh, wrote about these laws. He's a historian at the University of Florida, where he makes a really good argument that there's like a highly racialized aspect to uh, fears of stranger abductions. And he points out that around the time that Megan Kanka, Jacob Wetterling, Adam Walsh um, were abducted, there were all these unsolved murders of African-American children in Atlanta. Um, And nobody knows the name of any of those children. There were never any federal laws passed honoring them or their lives. You know, when Clinton signed the Adam Walsh Act in 1996, he was surrounded by families who'd been harmed, you know, who, who had missing children. None of the families of the children who were missing and never found in Atlanta were there. Um, So a lot of this is just about our fear of white middle-class children being taken, being harmed. Um, And in reality, most kids who are harmed in our society are overwhelmingly poor. Many of them are non-white and they're hurt by, you know, many other things besides sexual harm. Can you talk about the case of Carol Nystikis, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. She's the mother of, of Adam, uh, who's a 33-year-old, now 33-year-old registered sex offender. This was a case where um, I think he had, I don't know if he was on the autism spectrum or he had some kind of um, neurological difference. Um, and it's a really harrowing case. And I think that you have written about it and, and talked about it. But can you uh, kind of take us through that that story? Yeah. So uh, her son, Adam, he's 33 now, um, is on the sex offense registry. Um, He has, Adam has an intellectual and developmental disability. Um, He'll never be able to care for himself. According to Carol, he has the intellectual capacity of a 10 year old. He's very easily manipulated. Um, there's a really good piece she wrote uh, where she talks about all of the challenges he faces. Um, But she said, you know, he doesn't understand sex. He doesn't like to be touched at all, in fact. Um, And uh, Adam excelled in some ways. He he entered the Special Olympics and he loved being part of the Special Olympics. Um, And somehow he was, you know, spending time with somebody in the neighborhood Um, and, uh, the neighborhood boy told Adam, why don't you expose yourself to a five-year-old girl? And Adam, who's very confused, very manipulated, did this. Um, How old was Adam at that time? I think he was like 26, 27. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and it was kind of a boy in the neighborhood who had some troubles who Adam would kind of talk to and spend time with. And and the kid said, Hey, take down your pants and show the five-year-old girl. Adam didn't understand like what happened, but uh, the the little girl's parents understandably called the police and he's arrested, um, charged with lots of felonies. Uh, the parents spent lots of money trying to um, uh, defend their son and they were able to keep him out of prison, which was great, but um, he had to be on the sex offender registry for 10 years 
they accepted the deal. Um, and now he's on the registry. And the family's really been devastated. Um, financially, she, uh, his mother, who's amazing, um, and and the father, they're they're almost seventy now, and and they have no idea what's going to happen to their son um, because he's on the registry, and because they, it's it's far more challenging now to take care of them. Um, they had to move from their neighborhood um, to a much smaller home, and uh, sort of like the saddest thing. Um, when you learn more about this case is that he's banned for even when he gets off the registry, he can't be in public parks for the rest of his life. Um, and it will be hard for him to participate in the special Olympics because many of them take place in parks. So it's really sad that this kid who, who can't work, who can't do very much, but the special Olympics was something that really gave him life. He'll never be able to participate, you know, in the special Olympics ever again. And when he, when his parents are gone, I mean, presumably he may have to be in some kind of facility. I don't know if there are family members that will then take care of him, but would something like this um, make it harder for him to, for instance, live in a certain kind of institution or care facility, something like that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, like they're not going to be able to take him care of him forever. Uh, he has a sister who lives in Florida. Florida's got a you know, among the harshest sex offense laws in the country. If you're on the registry and you go to Florida, then you're going to be on their registry for life. Um, and uh, that would be very stressful. Even after he gets off the registry, he's sentenced to be on the registry for 10 years in Illinois, but he'll be on Florida's registry for life. So it makes it very challenging for him to visit his daughter, uh, his sister, uh, and eventually live with her. So yeah, he could... Um, wind up in, in, in a facility. Speaking of Florida, you suggested that I, I watch a film called Untouchable. This is a 2016, I think, uh, documentary about uh, what happens with the sex offender registry in Florida. Uh, one of the major players is a man named Ron Book, who is a very well-known lobbyist in Florida. And there was a situation in his family where a caregiver, um, I think she was from Honduras. She was basically a member of the family. She was like the nanny. Um, this was a very affluent family, uh, was found to have been sexually abusing one of his daughters over a very long period of time. And uh, she went to prison. I think she's still in prison. And Ron Book just has become obsessed with this issue uh, and, and, and the daughter also in her own way, um, although their paths, their approaches diverged at one point, can you talk about what you know about, about him and this case and, and the, the influence that he's had over legislation in Florida more generally? Yeah. I mean, so Ron Book is, is, as you pointed out, he's a super power, powerful lobbyist in Florida after he learned that his daughter, uh, had been, sexually abused by their live-in nanny, he kind of used this really crazy amount of political power that he had to make sure that Florida had the toughest sex offense laws in the nation, right? So Florida is the place where, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you have a group of people living under a bridge that 
you know, can't find housing. You have people living in parking lots. The film Untouchable is amazing. And it, it, it tells the story of some of these people who've just been, you know, annihilated by these laws. Um, but the interesting thing about that case also, right, is that his daughter was abused by a live-in nanny who was female, um, who didn't have a sex offense conviction. So all of these laws to punish those who've, who've, who've already served their time and been punished wouldn't have helped him. And I think what's really important, you know, if you really care about child sexual abuse or sexual abuse in general, is to identify the causes of it right? And um, work from there. Registries are just not the answer. So here's this guy, Ron Book. He's using this political power he has to pass residency restrictions. He, you know, This law that if you visit Florida for two days, you're on the registry for life. There's people who've died who are still in the Florida registry. Um, it won't help anyone or do anything. And unlike Patty Wetterling, who changed her her work as a result of seeing, you know, as a result of data and evidence, he just keeps going. And it really, the film really highlights how these laws are just completely irrational. They're just vengeance. Obviously, it's really painful to know that your child was sexually harmed under your watch in your home, right? But like, this is not the way to stop those cases or help anyone. Yeah. The amount of guilt that he is clearly trying to deal with is just, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, to watch the film and to listen to him talk and just to see the way he has processed this or really kind of like failed to process it in a productive way, you can see that he is struggling with so much um, guilt about having had this happen under his own roof. You sometimes wonder, I mean, this is entirely speculative, but I feel like in, in a lot of these cases, you wonder if something, if, if the person themselves has been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Like, you know, there's so many layers to this and there's so much emotional and psychological baggage that people deal with in all kinds of different ways. Um, that was just something I thought about watching the film. There was no mention or evidence of that, but, um, you know, I mean, it, it leads me to just something I want to talk about more broadly, which is the fact that there is a ton of sexual abuse against children just all over the place from family members, from coaches, from priests. I mean, I think that like, I don't, I would say easily half of the women I know have had something happen to them in childhood. Um, and it's not something that they would necessarily have reported. Um, sometimes they've moved past it pretty uneventfully. Other times it's really affected them. I think that maybe for generations that are younger than you and I, um, their sex abuse is going down um, for all kinds of reasons. So what, what do you know about that? Right. So um, by all measures, uh, starting in the early 90s, uh, there was a consistent decline in uh, sexual assaults against minors. Yeah, maybe it's, you know, as the issue has become more publicly discussed, there's less tolerance for it. Kids know when to report. So do you remember that film, Something About Amelia? It was like a television movie yeah, from the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good example. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, that was so, 1984. Yeah. And it was yeah. this highly rated film. You saw it when it came out, right? Because I did. 
Yeah, yeah I, I must have because I, yeah. I would have been 14 and it was a huge deal. It was a movie about incest, which right. was the word that nobody really, a lot of people hadn't even heard at that time. And it was a story of um, a girl who was being molested by her father. And it was a huge deal that this would be taken on in any kind of mainstream media entertainment right. way. White middle class family. And the thing about that film, it's a little, you know, if you watch it today, it's it's very dated and you know, um, it doesn't hold up for a lot of reasons. But one thing that's really interesting is that Ted Danson, who played the father, and he was like at the peak of his fame. He was in Cheers at that yep. time. So it was a of, huge deal for him yeah, to, play to play that a, kind of character. Yeah. Right. Um, and it didn't ruin his career or anything. Um, but the interesting thing about that is once the teenage daughter discloses that her father is sexually abusing her, um, she's put like in a home temporarily and he is ultimately like the judge says he has to stay in a hotel and not have contact with his daughters. But when that's happening, he's going to work every day and he has some kind of, he's like an advertising, he has just a regular kind of middle-class upper middle-class, uh, white collar job. And as somebody who works today with people who are accused of child sexual abuse, I mean, the first thing that happens is like, you're locked up, you lose your job. Um, He's treated, you know, they're all going to therapy. And at the end of the movie, the family stays together. He goes back home. He has to, like, make some promises that he's not going to go, like, camping alone with the daughter or call her princess anymore. Um, But he's home, like, and the mother forgives him. You know, she's sort of portrayed as, like, a cold person who maybe wasn't fulfilling his needs. Um, Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but but yeah, he's dealt with like somewhat sympathetically and it and and the message of the movie is like they can get help. They can stay together. He's kind of cured. And Mm. it's so interesting because today, if you are, uh, for example, there's a a family that I met in California where the father um, was convicted of sexually assaulting his stepdaughter. Um, and the stepdaughter had disclosed it during therapy, which is how it came to the attention of authorities. And then the police got involved. Anyway, he's serving a 30 year sentence and his daughter cannot visit him, even though the daughter wants to. She says she forgives him. The mother is devastated. The mother wants her husband home. They've kind of healed as a family and and sort of like what happened in this movie. They dealt with whatever was going on. but the state has said, you know, the, your stepdaughter is your victim. She's not permitted to visit you. She's made lots of appeals. Um, you can never go back into that house and you're going to be he's a, he's in a maximum. He, he has a violent felony conviction and he's in a maximum security prison for the next 30 years. And the, the mother has actually become an activist against these laws because she's like, this isn't about me. This isn't about my daughter. Who are they protecting? There were no other alleged victims. Um, there was. And again, like. Obviously, it's a terrible thing, but who who are we protecting here? Like, who's benefiting from this guy spending 30 years in prison? Yeah, it's so complicated because I don't know if there's data on this, but it seems like people who commit sex crimes against children very often were victims themselves as children. It is a pattern. It gets handed down. It's, you know, an an effect of trauma. So how how to address this? It's just really, it's really hard. Like, is there any, well, I mean, you said earlier that there's, we're seeing less of it and it yeah. may be like, I do. Yeah. I think that there's, there's a real so, the time. right. And there's so much messaging around 
kids being told they should speak up, that they will be believed. You know, there was also that phenomenon, um, the Snuffleupagus character on Sesame yeah. Street. So in our time, Snuffleupagus was Big Bird's imaginary friend and the grownups didn't believe he existed. And every time the grownups came around, suddenly Snuffleupagus would be gone. And I guess there was some kind of research done in the 90s that this storyline was preventing, was was making kids feel like they wouldn't be believed by adults for whatever reason. So suddenly um, Snuffleupagus became known uh, finally at one point. So um, yeah, I think, um, I think that's a huge, a huge difference. But yeah, um, there's, there was intensive yeah. public awareness. There was also like a lot of aggressive efforts at case finding and at prosecution, incarceration that might've had some deterrent effect effect on potential mm-hmm. offenders. If you know you're going to go to prison for 30 years, um, you know, that does have an effect. Um, people are, you know, it, it's so stigmatized that the increasing, you know, people, people are inhibited by fears of detection and prosecution. Right. Right. And, right. you know, there are, there are deterrence has, has, you know, the greatest impact on those who have like a lot of self-control. So um, yeah, you see, you you are seeing a lot less of it, um, in across the board. Um, but, but this happened not because of registries, right? I mean, it, it happened because of the awareness. Um, and again, part of it was like the, the increasing punishment, but, but I would argue it was like talking about it, the awareness, you know, you see the same thing with sexual harassment, with, uh, adult rape, right. Um, adult sexual assault. Um, domestic violence, all of these these social problems, once awareness was raised, you do see some decline. Have you seen an improvement in treatment for people who commit these crimes? There is a storyline in the film uh, yeah. Untouchable, where there's a man, uh, older man, older gentleman who is now is living in like some kind of trailer park that is just for men who have committed sex crimes, I assume. There's a sign at the entrance saying no women or children allowed beyond this point. Very strange to see that. But, um, you know, he basically admits I have a problem. This this is what I am drawn to. Small, young girls, like, you know, five or six or seven years old is what I'm drawn to. I know it's wrong. I never want to actually act this out. Um, but it's something that I struggle with. Is there kind of more room in therapeutic communities to address this just, you know, for what it is and at least admit that this is a problem that has to be managed rather than cured, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is, you know, there are those who argue one of the reasons why those, you know, who do offend, offend, um, is because they can't get treatment because, you know, uh, therapists and others are mandated reporters. So if you go and you say, I'm struggling with these urges, you know, you are there, you know, there's a good chance they, they can report you to the police and, and the, the, the numbers differ by state and things like that. And there's that famous, uh, well, it, it, the documentary capturing the Freedmans has this one moment where, um, which is about a father who uh, is somebody who who purchases uh, child pornography. An amazing film, by the way, a fantastic film that I don't even know would be made today. It certainly would not have won uh, 
all the accolades that it did. Yeah. And the the son in that film is still on the registry, even though it's pretty clear in the film that he's completely innocent mm-hmm. um, of, of touching children. And so is the father. Um, but the father was guilty of purchasing child pornography through the mail. And there's this one moment where uh, they point out that in the 50s, he went to seek therapy and said, like, help, I'm attracted to young boys. Like, what should I do? And the therapist said, go to Times Square, buy some child pornography. It was legal at that time. It wasn't until like the late 70s that you see major efforts to ban it and stop it, which is obviously a good thing. Um, But it wasn't criminalized at all to the extent that it is today. And she said, buy magazines of young boys and get married to a woman and, you know, make a life for yourself. And that was considered like, and that's your therapy to like, look at these magazines. Right. And obviously that's not like great treatment, but in some ways there are some studies that show, um, the, that resource, you know, access to, uh, pictures like that could deter some from offending. Yeah. Oh, but it's also like conversion therapy. Right. Exactly. It was. Yes. Yes. I mean, this was in the 50s and and who knows what kind of psychologist it was. There is um, a school of thought that pedophilia is a sexual orientation like in in a way i mean i've read i think that you know there there is there are some researchers or psychologists that are beginning to kind of approach it that way and that's not to say that it's a sexual orientation that should be condoned or but like just to accept that this person is not going to be able to get past this and so therefore what are other out, what are other sexual outlets that um could be available so that they would stay away from children, which a lot of them want to stay away from children. They don't want to be criminals. They don't want to hurt anyone. Um, I just, I wonder, like, in a way, um, digital, you know, digital pornography, it's it's more easily available. Like, I guess you could make an argument that that would be a solution insofar it's, it's better than molesting a child. But also that's, that's a crime too. So even downloading child pornography will get you on the registry, right? Right. Not only it'll it'll get you a life sentence in many states, much less, yeah. you know, not to even mention the registry. Yeah, I mean, um the the punishment for for looking at pictures of children is has gone completely out of control and there's a lot written on that. There's mandatory minimums and and uh one story in in this book I edited about people with intellectual disabilities um, sort of looks at the incidence of people who have intellectual disabilities who seek out pictures of children on the internet because they're immature themselves and they mm-hmm. are you know, not taught about sexuality because they're viewed as intellectually disabled, but they have some sexuality. And right. so there's this, there's some evidence that there's a disproportionate number of people being arrested for looking at pictures of children who have intellectual disabilities. And is there some metric by which your punishment correlates with how many times something downloaded on your computer? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There's, there's, it's completely, if you're, if you're caught, you know, if you have like a one minute video, it'll count as, you know, like a thousand pictures because every moment. um, Yeah. And when, I guess when you download those pictures, you get a lot of pictures. So it's, it, the sentence is based on the number of pictures that you are caught with. So, you, you know, you get 
a very extreme sentence. Even if, you know, there's some research that shows uh, you, you're not necessarily, many people who are caught with looking at illicit images of children never are alleged to have touched a child. And this is an outlet or they're too scared to touch a child, you know. Right. Um, or they have, there's, you know, it, one study found like men who have jobs are less likely to seek out touching a child. They have more fear of uh, shame or punishment. So they, they are almost, you know, there's a, no risk of them reoffending or hmm. offending with a child, right? The idea is that you have to put somebody in prison for a really long time who looks at these pictures because you know, you caught them, they would inevitably have touched a child. But there, that connection is not so clear. The reoffending thing, I still, I'm still a little bit having a hard time getting my mind around that because I, I think there are a lot of the cases that you're talking about and a lot of the people who are on the registry, they're on for reasons that they shouldn't be on there and they're not going to reoffend. And that's a particular kind of case. But like I said earlier, there are, it is a pattern with a certain kind of predator and those people, there are a lot of those people. I mean, we see it in priests, for example. Like, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, well, like, but with it priests, seems like if yeah. the priest, they, they molest one kid, there's going to be 10, 20 more. Right. There, it seems like there are those cases like that with, with priest or Larry Nasser. Um, but once they're caught, I mean, what we have to figure out is how to stop it because these are people who are not caught and the, the, you know, hundreds of victims kind of thing happen when nobody reports it, where nobody, you know, it's somebody in a position of power who, you know, they're not going to be believed. Right. So we have to figure out like how we can do better so that people don't get away with it. Right. So that right. people are stopped after the first one or the second one. Right. And okay. I think like the Supreme Court, right, there's a there's there's a really good article called Frightening and High, the Supreme Court's Crucial Mistake about Sex Crime Statistics. And Justice Kennedy, um, he wrote in a decision that the recidivism rate, quote, of untreated offenders has been estimated to be as high as 80 percent. Um, and he says uh, uh, a sex offense treatment program gives inmates a basis to identify the traits that cause such a frightening and high risk of recidivism. So the, 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 this amazing lawyer, Ira Elman, with his wife, Tara Elman, looked to see where they got this because none of the social science literature shows that there's a recidivism rate of 80%. So they kind of dug and they, they dug and they dug and they found that he was actually quoting an article that was pub he was, he was quoting other decisions. And ultimately those other decisions, he went back, back, and he discovered that those other decisions were quoting a 1986 article from Psychology Today, which is, you know, this mass market magazine. It's not a scholarly source. And in that article, there's this sentence that says most untreated sex offenders released from prison go on to commit more offenses. Indeed, as many 80, as 80 percent do. Now, there's no reference for it or anything. Um, and it turns out the uh, author of this article is citing a counselor, not a scholar of sex crimes or reoffense rates. Um, he's talking to a counselor who uh, runs a runs a program for sex offenders at an Oregon prison. So he's mm -hmm. just kind of saying, yeah, like most if we don't give them treatment, 
there about 80% of them are going to reoffend. But this is a guy who's running this program who has actually denounced this and said he didn't mean anything. He was just talking about his program and maybe what he'd seen right. or what he was thinking. So it's this th- throwaway comment that's worked itself up into all of these decisions and into the into the culture. So people say they're predators, they're animals, they reoffend, they re- they reoffend, they reoffend. And all of these decisions are about people who are convicted. And there's no evidence that once you're convicted of a sex offense, you are inevitably going to reoffend. There, it's simply myth. Okay, I see what you're saying. It's like it's like uh, the the child sex crime version of the one in five women will be raped yes. during college statistic, which was I think exactly. David, David Lisak, who was the that came from his study, which he has since uh, denounced and recanted. But never mind, it's a r- runaway train, right. um, and has affected all kinds of legislation. So. Do you have any ideas about effective, creative solutions to this? Is there a way to kind of figure out ahead of time who is likely to commit these crimes and just be aware of it or stop them or just like what would what would be a better way? I mean, it's kind of boring, right? It's like we know children who have a lot of communication with their parents who are believed who you know, get support are more likely to um, share that they've been abused, right? You hear all these stories. I, I, nobody would believe me or I went to my mom and my mom didn't believe me. And again, like, I do think it's a generational thing. I think in our generation and in something about Amelia, in fact, the mother doesn't believe her. Um, Played by Glenn Close, by the way. Yes. She was also like at the height of her career and she's great (laughs) in that movie. Very bold acting choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she tells her daughter she's lying. Whereas today, I think we do believe we're aware that this is a social problem, that this happens. And counselors, teachers believe children when they tell them this. Right. Um, but they also you know, there's also a problem of false allegations. And, you know, it's good to be, you know, to, to look for evidence and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, it's boring because, you know, there's a link with poverty, right? There's a link with kids who run away and then are sexually abused out of the home. Um, kids, there there was one study of, you know, kids in smaller spaces, like, you know, with without, um, you know, who are just in, in less affluent housing situations, um, living with multiple adults that weren't relatives, things like that. Um, yeah, so like, giving kids, you know, access to healthcare and therapy. And and we know that when child poverty rates go down, uh, child sex offense rates go down. And I mean, like you said, it's probably not going to ever be zero because it is something that's existed since the beginning of time. But blowing it up to this thing that requires these laws and as as our mutual friend Lenore Skenazy has worked on, like we all have to keep our kids locked away because they might be picked up off the street and molested by somebody. It's all it's all a panic. It's not real. It's a hysteria. And like that's more important than trying to get the rates down to zero. The point of justice is to have justice. You can have punishment without these life destroying vengeful policies. Is there anything similar to this? Is there an analog in any other kind of sphere of uh, of punishment of of criminal law? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I always one thing that I always think about is that if you talk to people who've been incarcerated, as I do a lot because I run this program for people 
who are not on the registry, but who've been incarcerated, um, they'll always say like, you know, if you're in prison and you are convicted for sexually abusing a child, you will be like abused, you know, throughout. But they'll say, you know, you're treated better if you kill a child than if you sexually harm a child. Um, you know, like if through a gunshot or something, right? That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you're treated better by other people in the prison, you know, but also when you get out, you're treated better. If somebody moves into your neighborhood who, I mean, if they get out of prison, if they, you know, whatever shot a minor when they were 20, you know, you're not going to know that they murdered somebody, but you'll know if, you know, they had, they inflicted sexual harm on somebody, even if the person was never like injured or anything like that, like a nonviolent sexual offense, you would know. Do you ever think about just this kind of collective fixation our culture has on on sexual offenses against children? I mean, the foundation of QAnon is this notion that there's this cabal of child sexual predators, possibly Hillary Clinton among them. It's so over the top. And, you know, again, my feeling as my armchair psychological diagnosis is that a lot of these people were victims themselves. And so there's all kinds of unprocessed trauma that they're projecting onto the world around them. Um, that's probably overly simplistic, but, um, do you, what do you, what do you make of this just kind of, is it, is this an American phenomenon? Are we sort of uniquely, um, caught up in, in a lot of, uh, panic around this particular issue? Um, well, you see it also like in the English speaking, like in England and in Australia, they have these kinds of similar panics um, around this issue that we have. But, you know, QAnon is just a rehashing of like what happened during the daycare panic when they thought satanic ritual abuse was happening on a widespread basis. And they were throwing out numbers like a million kids are victims of satanic ritual abuse. And like Geraldo Rivera and Oprah Winfrey had people on talking about how there was, you know, vast networks of child sexual abusers oh, who were on the Satan. cover of Ms. Magazine. Yep. And actually, yeah, like feminists paid for to to do a dig under the McMartin preschool to see if children were really like going through tunnels and seeing dead babies and dinosaur, you know, uh, dragons and murder and all kinds of crazy stuff that just couldn't have happened. So it's like literally just another phase of that in my mind. It's just something that kind of has been simmering beneath the surface and now has resurfaced again. Um, Do you have hope that the registry will be um, gotten rid of in your, in your lifetime, in the time of your career? Like, what do you, what do you, what are you hoping for maybe 10, 20 years down the road? I mean, like I said, I don't think there's going to be like some, politician who's like, let's repeal the registry. I hope it just dies out, um, that it becomes too expensive, too unwieldy, uh, too stupid. I mean, there's just too much evidence that it doesn't work or do anything. Right. And so, and there are some, like, there's, there's these amazing advocacy organizations largely run by like women who have sons who are on the registry or partners who are on the registry. Um, there's a really good article that was written about like how the leadership of women in the anti-registry movement, there's a, there's an organization called women against the registry. Um, and you know, they're the, they're advocates for their sons and their husbands who wind up on this thing. And some of them are really powerful and amazing. So there's like a number of national organizations that meet and 
They also challenge things constitutionally. I mean, it would be great if Elman's article knocked down the registry um, because he shows it's based on this completely flawed evidence. So some view like lawsuits as the way to go. And there's lots of lawsuits all the time. There's an amazing lawyer in California who just challenges every little dumb lawsuit that comes up. Like she challenges, her name is Janice Belushi, like lawsuits that say like, okay, people on the sex offense registry can't go to the library. And she got that knocked down in some, you know, town in California, or they can't, you know, uh, be in the homeless shelter in this town. Um, And she'll just like kind of knock them down that way. But yeah, it would be great if it was yeah either declared unconstitutional. And there's been some good rulings. I mean, there's lots and lots of evidence. Well, Emily, thank you so much for talking with me about this. I think this is a subject that people do not think about. It does not occur to most people um, to even question this. So it's really, um, it's, it's illuminating and it might be a little jarring for people, but um, I think it's really useful to, to hear from people like you doing the kind of work that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was great. I really appreciate you doing this and um, I appreciate it so much. That was my interview with Emily Horowitz. Emily is a sociologist who studies sex offense law and policy. She's the author of a number of articles about the harms of sex offense registries and also the author of the book, Protecting Our Kids, How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing Us. She's currently conducting research on the experiences of veterans with sex offense convictions. Emily is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York, where she co-directs a program that helps those with criminal justice involvement earn college degrees. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. To support the show, visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. If you join at the $10 a month level or higher, you will get $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast nuanced AF merchandise. There are hats, shirts, mugs, thermoses, stickers, magnets, baby onesies. You can find all of it in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art camp 
campus in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. 